Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. It's good to uh, be worshiping with you from uh, our time in the park. This feels quite a bit more formal, so, but it's good to be here. We're, uh, we're excited about today. We're excited looking forward to the time that we'll be residing in the Sycamore DeKalb area. Looking forward to that day. We're just packing up the last bit of things in our house um, this afternoon. Uh, putting that somewhere, I have no idea yet, and, uh, and then leaving tonight on a trip for the Netherlands uh, for about four weeks, so we're, we're excited about that. One more time to preach this evening, um, but you get the best because it's the first, and there's no energy left for the second, but uh, it's good. So we're excited to be here. We're excited particularly, I'm excited particularly to kick off in some ways the series that KBC is going to be going through for the next six, seven weeks uh, about following Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, and to do that by looking today at perhaps what is the, perhaps the greatest or one of the greatest passages of our Bibles, and perhaps the place that provides us the most succinct picture of who he was, dying on the cross, walking out of the tomb. We're going to be looking at the little book of Colossians, so if you like, you can turn there, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And I'm going to begin, before we dive in, looking at it a little bit more in depth, I'm going to begin by reading these verses again, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And it says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. Would you pray with me then that God would give us ears to hear? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a picture. What a picture of your son and what you've been doing from the beginning to elevate him to the very highest position in creation and recreation, in sustaining the world and saving it from itself. And bringing this world into existence and in reconciling it back to you. And all through Jesus, all to Jesus, all in Jesus, your beloved son. 
It's my prayer and it's our prayer today that we might see him as we embark even in these next weeks looking at what it means to follow him. It's my prayer that we would see him and savor him and serve him and submit ourselves to him as our one and only king, our one and only savior, our one and only peace and hope and joy that Jesus might reign starting today more than he ever has before in our lives. And it's in his name that we pray and hope that this might be true. Amen. Well, the story is told of a, a young man who conquered the known world by the age of 33. And he, he conquered it. His, his prowess in battle was unmatched. And to many, he, he smacked of the divine. And when he had finished his task, or at least brought it as close to completion as possible... As the story goes, he cried. Do you know the story? This is the story of Alexander the Great, perhaps the greatest military leader to ever walk the earth. He was tutored by Aristotle, came to his father's throne at the age of 20, and, and set off from there to conquer, to establish his throne and to expand his kingdom. And toward the end of his campaign, having just founded the largest empire that the world had ever known, one of the philosophers that he had brought along for the, for the ride began to, to lecture on what was probably back then as odd a topic as it would be today. The idea that there are an infinite number of worlds. Now, unless you grew up in a philosophy department, that may not be something you've ever contemplated. But this philosopher be, began to to lecture on the idea that there were an infinite number of worlds, but Alexander's reaction was perhaps not what you'd expect. And it opened up a window into his soul. He began to weep. He began to weep. Why do you cry? His friends asked. Is it not worthy of tears? He said. Is it not worthy of tears that when the number of worlds is infinite, we have not yet become lords of a single one? This is the story of Alexander the Great, but it's in a lot of ways the story of the not-so-greats as well. This is the story of man and of men. This is the story of woman and her offspring, each of us, in our own way, sets out in an unconquerable quest to reign. We don't always set our sights as high as Alexander did, but we go after whatever empires we can, all in an effort to establish our thrones and expand our kingdoms. Can you see yourself reflected in this story? Can you see yourself? I was struck by my own part in this just a bit ago in our last apartment that we lived in. Catherine, who uh, many of you know by now, many of you will get to know, uh, Catherine woke me up in the middle of the night because she, she, she heard something. So I was sent to go and, and check the doors. And I went unarmed, not expecting anything, but very quickly realized that my kingdom had been encroached upon 
when a mouse scurried across the kitchen floor. And I went into action. I cornered the mouse. I forced him in between two cabinets. I proceeded to rip the cabinet off the floor to crush him. (laughs) I had reestablished the boundaries of my dominion and I celebrated (laughs) until another mouse (laughs) went running across the kitchen floor. Whether it's our corner office or our seat at Starbucks, whether or not our kids are being recognized for their academic achievements or their athletic advancements that you or I never attained to, whether we're staunchly holding to tradition or blazing the trail of progress, our pew or seat, our leather chair in front of the TV, or perhaps it's nothing more than the the porcelain ones we go after claim as our own. The point is, though, that once we have established our thrones in whatever form we find them, we spend the rest of our lives in a futile attempt to defend and expand the kingdoms we can never quite keep. I want to talk to you today, though, about how we don't have to go after such kingdoms anymore, how We shouldn't, not because they are so difficult to conquer or because someone like Alexander the Great conquered them first, but because a different man who conquered a bigger world by the time he was 33, who not only smacked of the divine but claimed divinity for himself and when he was finished cried out for a very different purpose. I want to talk to you today about Jesus the one we'll be talking about for the next six weeks and hopefully for eternity. I want to talk to you about Jesus and how he's the reason we can give up our quests for kingdoms and instead live under his, how that is very freeing indeed for those of us who spend our lives going after what was never ours to have, trying to preserve what was never ours to keep, Because you could spend the rest of your life looking for better thrones and bigger kingdoms, but in the end, a quest like that will give you more to cry about than simply not getting it. We go after our thrones and kingdoms we were never meant to reign, but we don't have to anymore. So today I want to you to see that Jesus is the only one worthy of sitting on the thrones we go after, sitting on the throne and the only one who can as the one the throne was intended for from the very beginning. And why Jesus? Why is it his kingdom and not ours? I think Paul wants us to see in these verses that it's for two reasons. Because he is the firstborn of creation and he is the firstborn from the dead. So we're going to look at each of these in turn. First, that he is the firstborn of creation. He is the firstborn. He is the heir. He has that 
place within his father's world, and it is only his to have. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image particular that humanity in general was intended to be. It says in Genesis chapter 1, in the first book of the Bible, in the very opening of that book, that God made humanity, man and woman, in his image. Now, we talk about images in the Bible as things that are worshipped, right? Representations of often false gods, an idol, a, a representation of a god placed within the representation of that god's throne room, a shrine or a temple. And we, see, we still see these things today. Catherine and I got to travel a, a, a month ago. Uh, we, were in, um, we were in London. It has its own sorts of temples. Then we went to Rome, and temples are all over the place. You can still see these things today, and if you have eyes to see, you see them more often than you might think. So that what is worship, though, when you see this, a temple or a shrine, what you're looking at is, is something being worshipped down here in the tangible that represents, assumingly, something up there, an image of what we supposedly can't see. But in our indulgence in or rants against the idolatries of our day, we never stop to think that the true God has set his own representation, his own image made in his likeness at the very heart of his creation. God doesn't tolerate the images of false gods because he set the image of himself in the very center of his world, at the very beginning of the story. That's what the garden is all about God placing his image, his idol, his representation in the middle of his temple, the, the representation of his heavenly throne room, the Garden of Eden. The garden was the first temple ever built. Humanity was the first image ever fashioned. And God's the one who did it. Just as God's the one it was meant to point to. Humanity was intended to be the idol of God, not to be worshiped in God's place, but to be beheld that the God we represent might be worshiped on our account. Do you see the picture? And that explains why if you're watching something like America's Got Talent, anybody else? We do. If you're watching something like America's Got Talent, sometimes it doesn't matter what they're doing, doesn't matter what they're singing about, but you find yourself inexplicably drawn upward because that's the image of God at work, pointing to the one we're all meant to reflect. Have you experienced that? Like I said, we have. <laughs> but Jesus is the image that none of us can be, at least not to the fullest. The story reads almost like mankind was created in the image of God simply that it would one day usher in the true image that the rest of humanity failed to fulfill. If we're talking about kingdoms, right? We're talking about kingdoms. And who gets to sit on the throne? 
the one who reigns down here had better be a pretty good representation then of the one who reigns up there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And this doesn't mean that God's beloved son was the first to be created, but that by being the image humanity was intended to be but never was, Jesus has assumed the position of both prominence and preeminence over the created order, and the position was waiting for him to fill it. The point is not about whether the second person of the Trinity, known in the person of Jesus, was a created being, but that in stepping into creation, he has the rights of rulership over the created order under his Father, who has the rights of rulership over the uncreated order. Jesus is king. I built a, a Lego table for um, Emmett, our son, for his birthday a couple years back. It's actually sitting down in the church offices. I've been sneaking things in while nobody's looking because we have this moving dilemma that we're trying to be out of one place, don't have another place. Anyway, it's sitting down there, Lego table. Built him this little world, his world. It was, our, it was my world, really. Built it for myself. <laughs> and Emmett uses it every once in a while. There was a, a moment when, uh, when Emmett, my son, was out of the room and the oldest one left was our neighbor friend from next door. And so I set our neighbor friend over. He, I set him in charge of, of my created order. But he proceeded to destroy the world that I had built the day before. So I learned my lesson. I said, Emmett, come back in. You're in charge. Why? Because you bear my image better. You were there when I made it. You helped me do it. You carried out my plans. This is now your world. You reign on behalf of me. How much more, Jesus? How much more the firstborn of creation that was there when it all began and did his father's bidding? Jesus has proven himself as the image of his Father in every way. It says, for by him all things were created. By his power, in him, all things were created. As the image of God, he has been carrying out his Father's will since before the world began. He is the creative agent of all things, things in heaven and things in earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And as the image of the invisible God, he has acted on God's behalf and he has in this way rightly won his place as the firstborn of creation. Were you there? Were you there? Did you set the world on its foundations. Did you do it? I wasn't. Why then go after the throne? Why do we? We didn't make it. I didn't breathe life into dust. Almost all scientists today 
agree that it couldn't have happened by chance. They're trying to find out how it could have happened, find out some way other than God. But they all agree today, almost all, that it wasn't simply chance. Chance is not enough. Why do we go after the thrones to which we have no rights? Jesus reigns over heaven and earth, what is seen and what is unseen, no matter the spiritual power of darkness or light. Jesus reigns over it all and is the one through whom it all came into existence and for whom it exists, being there at the beginning but also as the goal toward which all things are headed. The last time we were in the Netherlands, a friend of ours um, who's over there uh, bought a, 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 a play set for the beach. And it was good. It was a big play set. It had all sorts of stuff in there. One of the things was a boomerang. You ever try to throw a boomerang? You ever have a boomerang come back? I've never had. <laughs> they're sitting there throwing this boomerang sailing over unsuspecting strangers in a sense though this is the boomerang throw to which all others since have been mere echoes one who threw the world into existence and was there to catch all the glory on the other side In a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, right? Verse 17 says, and he is before all things and in him all things still today, now, at this very moment, hold together. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, the rightful heir by place and position of his father's kingdom. But he is also rightful heir by person and power as the firstborn from the dead. And place and position, but also person and power. And this is our second reason why Jesus is the king that you and I can't be. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Yes, he is before all things as the creator through whom all things were made and by whom all things hold together. But he is also, verse 18 says, the head of the body, the church. The community of those that have experienced new life. It says he is the beginning. And I just want to take a moment to explain what this word beginning means. Do you see it there in the text? He is the beginning. In its most basic form, this word beginning simply means the point of departure, the origin or cause. And it could also be used to emphasize, though, the one who rules. Do you know that? The one who rules. Paul just used it this way when he said that all things were created in Jesus, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That word rulers is the same word translated here as beginning. So, what Paul is saying is that more than simply the beginning, Jesus is the one who rules as the beginning of it all. And not just as the one who made it all, the beginning itself, 
but the one who restarted it, who gave it a new beginning. He is the ruler, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, Paul says. Not just first on the scene, which he was, but first in rank, the image of the invisible God, not just in the creation from nothing to something, which is amazing in and of itself, but in the resurrection from death to life. He rules. You see, what this means for us is that if this is true, that this world was created through the power of the word of God, that it is renewed as the word of God is spoken over it again and as the word, Jesus Christ, takes his place as its ruler, then there is no throne left that you and I can go after. Nothing. Not in marriage, not in work, nothing. Not in recreation, not in parenting. Can't do it, even though it's Father's Day. That doesn't mean you get to be king. Go out to eat, but you can't be king. (laughs) And it's good. From the White House to Buckingham Palace and all the makeshift thrones in between that we come up with, everything was made to be brought under the reign of Jesus because it's God's reign. It's his world and his temple. And it's only the one who stands as his image that can sit on his throne in his place. Jesus has secured that position by nature of his very person, not just as God's agent of creation, but as God's agent of recreation. As he's broken the bonds of death through his death on the cross. He's the firstborn from the dead. And our hope of ever having life after death ourselves. Verse 19 says, for in him, in his person, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's not a a question of whether or not God's fullness did dwell in Jesus. It's a statement about God's pleasure. God, in his fullness, was pleased that his fullness dwelt in Jesus. Do you understand the profundity of that statement? God in his fullness was pleased that his fullness dwelt in Jesus. Don't ask me why, but Emmett and Aletheia have been reading ancient Mesopotamian poetry. (laughs) And they just got done reading a, a, a clip called The Epic of Gilgamesh. Have you heard The Epic of Gilgamesh? Yeah. I didn't read that until college, but it's one of the oldest stories about how the world began, and in it you see this ancient perspective on creation as the product of strife between competing gods. One god kills another god, and from the corpse, half of the corpse makes earth, the other half makes heaven. And you can see in stories like that why for all of human history, humanity has been stuck between the belief in one God and many gods. You ever lie awake struggling over this? I've had at least one night struggling over this. 
nice thing about one God is it's clean. It's clean. There's one God, there's one king. But singularity is cold, distant, overwhelmingly transcendent. But as soon as you introduce a plurality, more than one, and the possibility of relationship, the closeness that comes from that, you find that you're in a mess. Why? Because there's an immediate struggle for power. If there are two gods, the question is, which one wins in a fight? And adding gods from there simply multiplies the problems. But the unique witness of the Christian faith is that we serve a God in unity known in diversity. No one else has it. Three fully divine persons, yet they are one. And it can be said that God, the Father, in his fullness, was pleased that his fullness dwelt in Jesus. Transcendence. So he can be the image that we are not, but imminence, so that we can have a part in it. Father was pleased that his fullness dwelt in the Son as he carried out the Father's heart as the instrument of redemption, as much as he had carried out the Father's heart as the instrument of creation. It says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. All that will be reconciled will be reconciled through him as he makes peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Jesus has won the right. The right you and I can never win. And the right was always his to win, to rule in his Father's stead over all that is created, just as his Father rules over all that is uncreated. Jesus was able to fulfill God's purposes for humanity in a way none of us ever could, to rule where Adam should have ruled, but didn't, and reign where all of Adam's children need to reign, but can't. Jesus did what we were made to do, but couldn't. And then went as far as dying a death we all deserved. But no longer have to. All that he might sit on a throne only he can sit on. Thereby open up for us thrones on which we might sit. Not over him, not instead of him, but sitting beside him and sitting with him and sitting under him in his magnificent kingdom. That's what this is about, a kingdom where Jesus reigns in every square inch He is the high king, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead in place and position, person and power. And he invites us to reign before him as he has secured his kingship and our place within his kingdom with his blood. Funny, we spend our lives going after what was never ours to have. And here's the one, the only one who had a right to it 
and gave it up on our behalf. Two reasons why Jesus is the only one who can sit on the throne and establish his kingdom as far as he wants. And why you and I should want nothing more than to live under his loving reign. As we close, then, let me encourage you in three ways. Let me encourage you first to be thankful. This is actually how Paul segues into this passage from his opening prayer. He, he prays that we would be strengthened to walk as God would have us walk. Knowing God and knowing him in Jesus, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He says God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Jesus, firstborn of creation, firstborn from the dead, in whom, he says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You go after your own kingdom, you put yourself, you pit yourself against the true king. And yet from darkness, we've been invited into life. So you can be thankful that Jesus has done what you and I never could. He has earned the rights to the throne and in the process earned us a right into the throne room. But let me also encourage you to be careful. Paul's setting this up on the front end of this letter of, to the Colossians because he's about to unmask a tendency within the Colossian church to constantly forget that Christ and Christ alone sits on the throne. And we're no less vulnerable today, are we? Either looking to ourselves or looking to something else, we lose sight of God's purposes to elevate Christ as our exclusive king and conqueror. I remember uh, a few years back, Catherine's brother introduced us to a uh, an investigation show that looked at some of the, the worst accidents in human history caused by human error. And so you'd watch, and by the end, you'd see how this plane crash in midair, a, a one in a million chance, was caused by some guy who didn't take his aspirin the night before. Or a, a train uh, derailing in Tennessee and kills 300 people it was because a traffic light in Indiana went out and wasn't fixed. You think, how, how could it? Well, Paul is saying, you might not think this is a big deal. You might not think Christ being on the throne is a big deal. Where you go around and you say, yes, Jesus, but, yeah, he can have this, he can reign here. But you know, Friday nights, that's my night. Or you know, when I'm with this group of people, that's my group of people. And he can reign everywhere else, but not here. And Paul's saying, this is the one thing that we will derail everything. Because this is what derailed humanity to begin with. And it'll do it again. Be thankful. But be careful. And go home. And even this week, even today, even before lunch, 
big ask on Father's Day. Go home and take a hard look. What piece of life are you keeping to yourself, continuing to reign on your own terms? Be thankful, be careful. Let me then thirdly, though, encourage you in your families or when you're engaging others at work or in your communities that this is what you need to be looking out for in the lives of others. This tendency to go after our own thrones and to seek to expand our own kingdoms is is again at the very heart of what derailed humanity to begin with. Humanity, whether by decision or DNA, has from the beginning of its story been living as if it were king apart from the one true king. But Jesus came, firstborn of creation and firstborn from the dead, to right the wrong and to take back what was only ever his to have. And so when you're in conversation with your kids or with your spouse or with your neighbor, you know, looking over the fence, or maybe you've got a small fence. When you're in conversation, be looking in those people's lives and asking yourself, in what way is this person looking to themselves or looking to someone else as their king and conqueror when they should be looking to Jesus? And how can I show them the true king? How can I lead them to show them that Christ and Christ alone is what they need. And if they try to reign or they go after someone else as their king, they'll have more to weep about than simply an inability to conquer it. I've sort of grown in my understanding of what it means to be a dad, Father's Day. And I think my primary job in life come to realize is showing my kids, showing myself, my wife, that this world doesn't revolve around us, and then leading them to the one around whom it does revolve. It's not a bad description, those who are called to follow Jesus and then sent out to be fishers of men. Be thankful, be careful, be watchful and intentional. Let me leave you with this. I was talking about Legos earlier, and I remember a time um, that Emmett and I had built one of these little worlds, and we were sitting there talking about God and why it's so important to look to Jesus as our king and moaning and mourning the loss of one of our worlds, his sister Alethea, was it you? I don't know, was it? May have been, came in and, destroyed this little world and all these little yellow men were sitting there helpless and <laughs> they couldn't fix the world that they had lived so peaceably in for so long. I saying to Emmett, I said, you see these little yellow men? They got no hope. <laughs> they can't fix the little world that they were living in. But you know, that doesn't mean all is lost. Doesn't mean all is without hope. There's a chance that the one who made the world and the one who carried out the will of the Father in making the world would come back and 
remake that world again. And you know, when you look around this world, it ain't the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope. And if we look to ourselves, there isn't. Not much better than those little yellow men. There's a chance that the Creator and the one who carried out His will in creation might come again and actually, in fact, already has as the one who came to remake it. Firstborn of creation, firstborn from the dead. Be thankful and careful. Be watchful and intentional that Christ might be king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this six or seven week journey ahead of us, what it means to follow you, I pray that you would break into our lives and save us from ourselves. Save us first as we've constantly and continually go after the throne. Give us a vision of your son and then send us out to on your behalf take part in saving others as they go after the throne too. Pray that Christ would reign today and evermore. In his name, amen.